Um, we're in this series called Roots, in which we're talking about our, the rhythms and traditions uh, that help us to grow. We've had some great messages so far this summer. If you weren't here, please go back. Uh, they're all online, unfortunately, except for Brian's last week. The recording didn't, didn't turn out the way that we had hoped, uh, so we're disappointed about that because he gave a great, a great message. But Jim talked about prayer and reminded us that we come away from prayer uh, motivated and inspired and filled in order to make a change in our environment. And we talked about listening in his next message, and he said, really, you know, even before we, we pray, we should, we should begin with listening. We've been, been working on that as a congregation for the last uh, few years. I'll be talking a little bit more about that today. Um, Jeff gave a great message on worship and reminded us that worship isn't just something we do here on a Sunday morning, but it's our everyday response to God to live a life of worship, to live a life of devotion to God in everything that we do, in every aspect of our lives. That is what worship is, to live in response to God's grace and goodness in our lives. And then last week, Brian gave a, a wonderful message on service, reminding us that each of us, as we're called uh, we'll talk about this again later in the summer, but as, as we're called by God and uniquely gifted and we're turned outward so that we can, we can represent him and serve others and be Jesus to others in our community uh, and God through us can then um, be represented and impact the world. So there have been some great messages so far about this and today I'm talking about the word, how we use and understand the Bible for our growth. And so I thought we could start off by uh, just a word of prayer, and then uh, I'll have a, we'll ask the kids to answer that question for us. So let's just pray first. Father, thank you that we can be gathered here. And uh, we do think of all of our brothers and sisters who are at cottages and campsites and around in different places, um, just worshiping you, Lord, in the, in the temple of your creation. And we pray your blessing upon them. We thank you, Lord, that um, that we have this house that we can meet in and that we can come together as your family, your people to pray, to worship in freedom and in peace. These are great privileges. We think of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world for whom that's not a reality. And we pray, Lord, that those of us who have such blessings, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would, would work in our hearts and in our minds to, to motivate us to be more generous, to be more to be more sacrificial in how we live our lives for the sake of your kingdom. And we pray that your kingdom would come. Um, and as Jim prayed, Lord, we're mindful of, of those that are suffering uh, in other parts of the world, like the U.S. with the shootings and things like that. Would you raise up your church? Lord, would you bring healing to your church? And would you, would you just um, use your people to bring messages of love and reconciliation and hope and peace and gospel rather than division and strife and, uh, and antagonism. Um, just pray for your, your kingdom to come uh, here as it is in heaven. Father, we ask for your, your Holy Spirit to be in everything that is said here today as we talk about the Bible and uh, this gift of your word that you've given to us as your people. Lord, I surrender all of my words to you and ask that you would uh, use them as you wish. I pray that you would open hearts and minds I pray that, um, that your Holy Spirit would have freedom here today. He is welcome here, and I invite him to move as he wishes in our hearts and our minds as we listen to your word and as we submit to it. So we thank you for the privilege that it is to have this book and to know you by your Holy Spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
I want to begin by uh, just giving you an affirmation of what we uh, believe about the Bible. And it comes to us from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, where it says this, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And I wholeheartedly affirm that, and we affirm that at Forestbrook. We believe that the Bible is inspired. It is God-breathed. It's a special book, a unique book, in that it is, it is a gift to us from the very Spirit of God, uh, that every, every part of it is inspired, every part of it is God-breathed. We'll look a little bit later about how, how we understand that to be the case. Uh, but I just want to be out there right up front that, uh, that we believe that. And that it's beneficial for our growth. It's given to us to help us grow. We, we have it as this gift from God uh, to be able to, to learn his language and, and understand him better, to, have, to be able to have a dialogue with him and a communication with him. Um, and uh, that it is absolutely a good thing for us to read, to study, to discuss, to meditate on. And uh, again, we're going to be unpacking that as we go along today. And as I thought about how I could demonstrate to you uh, our approach to the Bible, uh, I thought that I would start by telling you my story, my story with the Bible over the years. And uh, so if you bear with me for a few minutes, I just want to share with you a bit of, of my, own, my own journey with this book that we call the Word of God. I was called at age 21. Um, and uh, at that time in my life, I was in University at Regina, and uh, I wasn't interested in God at all. I wasn't looking for, for God, but I was at that stage in my life where I was trying to figure out where my life was going and, and what I was all about. And some of these stories that I'm going to share with you, I've shared before, and so you might remember them. Others, maybe, you know, you haven't heard them all, but I'm just going to put them all together in a package for you today and kind of show you the thread of how God has, has worked in my life. Um, but I was, I was 21 years old, and I was sitting in the armchair in my living room um, living uh, on, on my own with a couple of friends of mine as I went to university. And I remember I was kind of wrestling with this question of where my life was going. And God spoke to me. And God spoke to me and God said, you know that if you want your life to count, it needs to be built upon me. Now, some might wonder, and I had people, people have asked me, how do you know that was God? Well, I don't know, it's just hard to put into words. You just know, it's just one of those experiences. But that experience, that word from God was so transformative in that moment that I made the decision to go back to church and I was baptized six weeks later. It totally turned my life around and totally changed my focus and my orientation of who I was and what I wanted for my life. I had grown up uh, in my parents' church, which was a, a very conservative, fundamentalist, Bible-believing church, uh, and that was really the only church that I knew, so I went back to that church, and I went with my dad, and I started attending that church, uh, and I just want to tell you a little bit about that church. It was a church that took the Bible literally, and took the Bible seriously. We believe that if the Bible said it, you did it, and if the Bible didn't say it, you didn't do it. Uh, and we took that to the nth degree. Some of you know I've told you that it was kind of an offshoot of Seventh-day Adventism. And I thought I would highlight this passage from Exodus chapter 31 about the Sabbath and give you an illustration. Um, this is what it says in Exodus chapter 31. Observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates the Sabbath must be put to death. 
Whoever does any work on that day must be cut off from his people. For six days work is to be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day must be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. So in that church, we believe that that the seventh day Sabbath was the sign of God's people. And that we, because we were God's people, needed to observe the seventh-day Sabbath. And not only that, but we observed it the same way that, that it's described in the book of, of Leviticus, from sunset to sunset. So from sunset on Friday night to sunset on Saturday night, we observed the Sabbath. We didn't do any work. I remember going to university professors and, and telling them that I couldn't take an exam on Friday afternoon because... The exam went until 5 o'clock, and the sunset was at 4 o'clock, and I wasn't going to take that exam uh, after sunset. And I remember one professor asked me, he said, he said, are you really that serious about your religion? And I was. Because the word of God said it, I believed it, and we were doing it. And we were all willing to sacrifice for it. We were willing to give up jobs, we were willing to give up all kinds of things, because the word of God said it, we believed it, and we did it. And we had all kinds of doctrines like that. We had dogmatic or emphatic positions on all kinds of things that we found in the scriptures that we believe the Bible to say. And we had this entire theology based on what we believe the Bible to say. We believed that we were right and you were wrong because you all worship on Sunday. And Sunday is the first day of the week and not the seventh day of the week. And so we used to say of our wonderful brothers and sisters in other parts of the body of Christ, you're very sincere, but you're sincerely wrong. Because we're right. Because we observe the seventh day Sabbath, and it's the sign of God's people, and that's what it says in the Bible. And I believed that. I believed that. And I lived that for many years. So after a while, after about a year and a half, I went off to Bible college in the denomination of that church. And I want to tell you a little bit about my time in, uh, in my four years at Bible college. This is a picture of my Bible from those days. So um, when you got there to Bible college, the first thing that, that if you were serious about studying the Bible, the first thing you had to do is you had to buy yourself a leather-bound, wide-margined King James Version Bible. And uh, that's because in all of your Bible classes, you were going to take meticulous notes. And uh, it's all this India, India rice paper, so it's really, really thin, so you had to have a special kind of pen in order to take all of your notes. And we were taught uh, to color code and to cross-reference uh, as we went right through the Bible from Genesis right through Revelation. Um, we had to memorize the Bible. We cross-referenced the Bible. We deciphered doctrines. We looked at, at all the different doctrines and all the different places of the Bible, and my, and my Bible became filled with these, with these notations in our margins. Um, we had such an emphasis on prophecy and the end times and, and what was going to happen and how things... And we, we interpreted everything that was happening in the world around us in light of our, our belief that we were living in the very end times and that Jesus would return at any moment and we were just, just a moment away from the end of the age and the return of, of Jesus. And I lived like that for years. I graduated from Bible college. My wife uh, and I both went there and we got married and we went into ministry went to Ottawa and did our internship where I was ordained, and then we ended up in Montreal where I pastored my first church for this church 
for this denomination still believing this. But with the death of the founder of that church and new leadership coming into that church, the Holy Spirit had an opportunity to begin to blow fresh breath into that church. And he did. The leadership said, you know, we don't want to have, we don't want to stand upon the doctrines of a human being. We want to make sure that what we're, we're teaching is, ag- is actually founded on the scripture. And so they began this intensive doctrinal review. And as they looked at the Bible afresh, they were astounded to find how many things had been misinterpreted by this founder and the leaders of the church. And one by one, they began to dismantle this, this doctrinal house of straw. As they looked into Scripture and began to realize that, that what they had always said the Scripture said, don't, it doesn't actually say that because we'd missed some very fundamental principles of what the Bible is and how it was put together. And one of the main things that that church had wrong is it didn't understand the distinction between the Old and New Covenants. We had blended the Bible all together. It says in Malachi that God doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So if he says one thing in the Old Testament, there's no way he's going to say something different in the New. And so we took everything in a chronology. So whatever God said first had to stand, and then whatever came after had to be built on top of that. And it was a fundamental flaw in our approach to Scripture. But not only did we not understand the covenants, we didn't understand Jesus. And we didn't understand the the primary role that he plays in the whole plan of God and in the Scriptures. We missed that. But one by one, the church began to change its teachings and to, to lead through the reform of renewal. Eventually, we reached a place, you know, we would get the study papers, I would study, and it was my job to teach the church and walk the church through these changes, and we did that for many years. But at one point, the church sent out a a paper saying that because we hadn't understood the covenants, we no longer felt that it was an obligation for a Christian, a true believer, to keep the seventh-day Sabbath, that Christ is our Sabbath rest, not a day of the week. That rocked my world. That was foundational to who I was. The seventh-day Sabbath was the sign of of me as a person of God. I'd staked my entire identity upon it. And I remember coming to Shirley after reading that, that study paper and saying, look, I don't get it. I said, now they're changing the Sabbath. What do I do? That was too much for many. It was too much for my dad. My dad walked away from the reforms at that time and walked right back into the old way of thinking. He couldn't couldn't cross that bridge. He'd staked his whole life on the seventh-day Sabbath. And I remember I was so caught up and not sure what to do. I would read the study paper, and it seemed to make sense. I'd look up the scriptures, and then I would read our old teaching, and I would look up the scriptures, and the same scriptures seemed to be saying two different things. People were using the scripture to argue both points of view. Who was right? I'm very grateful that I had a bishop by the name of Colin Wilkins, a wonderful wise man, and I went to him and I put my problem to him and he said, Kevin, he said, what you need to do is you need to get yourself a brand new Bible with nothing written in the margins and you need to prayerfully ask God to show you from that, what is he trying to say to you now? 
best advice I ever had. So I did. I got myself a brand new Bible, nothing written in the margins, and I began reading. And I was reading in the book of Hebrews. I don't know how I got there, but I was reading in the book of Hebrews. And as I was reading in the book of Hebrews, I had another God moment where I had an experience with Jesus reading in the book of Hebrews, where Jesus walked out from behind this curtain and stood in front of me, and I saw him playing his day for the first time in my whole life. And I looked at him, and he said, Kev, he said, if you have me, you need nothing else. Do you believe this? And my heart broke, and I looked at him when I recognized who he was. My heart broke, and I said, of course I want you. And in that moment, in that moment, all of the old skin fell off. 100%. It completely lost its power and hold over me. It was gone. It was gone. I had new eyes, new ears, and a new heart with which to pursue my life in Christ. Now that almost sunk me in ministry. Because I was still in that church and still leading through that reform, but I was now a different person. And I wasn't sure what I should do, so I kind of made up my mind. Shirley and I were talking about it, about getting out of ministry and just starting life over and finding a good, healthy church and, and, uh, and just kind of moving on, you know, and pursuing Jesus. But then God spoke to me again, and this time through 1 Peter chapter 5, when I was reading where he says, you know, as the elders of the church be shepherds of the flock, but not because you have to be, but because you're willing. And God said, Kev, are you still willing? I'm willing to have you if you're willing to stay. And I said, yes, Lord, I'm willing to stay. So we decided to stay in ministry, but made the decision to go to seminary and retool my ministry on a proper foundation. So we came here to the Toronto area, and I did my Master's of Divinity degree at Tyndale. And that was another different kind of experience. At Tyndale, I learned about biblical scholarship. I learned about how to study the Bible from an academic and a scholarly perspective. I learned about exegesis and hermeneutics. I learned how to, how to get into the text. I learned about, about biblical languages. I studied New Testament Greek so that I could read the Bible in New Testament Greek. I learned how to use all of the tools of the trade for being able to to really get deep into the scriptures. I learned about source evaluations and editorial theories, where the Bible came from, how it was put together, who wrote it, what are some of the disputes out there in terms of, of what the actual authorship is. I learned about doctrinal comparisons. This became my favorite way of approaching a doctrinal question uh, through these books that are called Counterpoint Series, where you recognize that in the body of Christ there are various viewpoints on any number of doctrines. And so they're all biblically based. And so the idea was, was to look at one person was saying and study their argument, look at the next one, study their argument, look at the next one, study their argument, compare and contrast. And these books are wonderful because they do that and they provide all kinds of, of information about how to, to get the merits of, a, of, a, of an argument, how to find the weaknesses in, in a doctrinal position across the body of Christ. And that began to be the way that I would study doctrine trying to find what made sense across the board. I studied church history. I read the church fathers. I read Augustine. I read Luther. I read Calvin. I read John Wesley and many others. 
I took a course from Eugene Peterson called Biblical Theology, or sorry, Spiritual Theology, Spiritual Theology, where he said something that really grounded me and, and just rooted me in, in, you know, the danger of, of the scholarly approach is you can actually, you can just kind of study away all of the inspiration of the scripture, and that's a deadly error. Well, Eugene Peterson said, he said, the goal of biblical scholarship is not to treat the Bible like you're dissecting a dead corpse. The goal of scholarship is to honor God by getting to the heart of what it is he's saying. And Eugene Peterson, always keep your ears open to listen to what God is saying in the scriptures. And that became my method. That became what guided me. Through all of the scholarship, through all of the study, that is what inflamed my heart. To hear God speak through the scriptures. When we graduated from seminary, um, I had the opportunity to go on and do a doctor of ministry with that same church. They were willing to support me in doing that, but I really, I didn't want to be an academic. I knew that I wanted to be a practitioner. I knew that I wanted to pastor. I knew that I wanted to help people live the life that God had called them to live. And I was praying that God would open a door that another church would call, and this church called. And I came here to Forestbrook, Shirley and I and Chelsea and Cameron came here to Forestbrook 17 years ago this weekend to be part of this church. We were excited to be part of a progressive evangelical church. And I say progressive because that certainly has been our hallmark. There's always been a tension between conservatism and progressive thinking, and that's normal in evangelical church, and that's been true here. But we always tilted towards the progressive thinking. I was excited to be part of a church where the elders had people like Brian Carney and Paul Lewis who were well-read theologically, who knew what they were talking about, who, who, when I had a conversation with them, I knew I was dealing with people who actually could understand at a level that I was trying to convey. I was grateful to come alongside Don Palmer, who was even more progressive than, than me in my thinking. He had a vision for how God was leading the church, and his heart was for mission, as is mine, because the church is meant to engage the culture. And we weren't doing that very well in this church or any other church. I would say that today we're doing it even more poorly as a, as a church in our culture, not just Forestbrook, but everywhere. And I was excited to be part of that. I was especially excited to be part of a church that emphasized common life in Christ rather than us all agreeing on doctrine. I had been part of a church where all saying the same thing in doctrine had been the glue of our fellowship, and it's a very brittle glue. It's a very brittle glue. As soon as we stop agreeing with one another, the love goes out the window. And we're lucky if we can even abide together. And the history of this church and other churches is that as soon as we disagree with each other, we're out the door and we're gone. That's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. So I was excited to be part of a church where our union was our common life in Christ. And that was shown up in this table every single week. I was so thrilled. In our old church, we did it once a year because that's, that's when 
Easter happens. That's when Passover happens is once a year. And if the Bible says it, we did it. And so we would do it once a year. Nothing wrong with that. But we, we look down on any church that did it more often than that because that's all what, you know, that's what Jesus said. But to come into a church where we did it every week, where we reminded ourselves every week that this is our life, that this is our foundation, that this is what we unite around, was so exciting and so life-giving. And I am thrilled that we continue that uh, to this very day. Seven years ago, though, we were in an unsettling time here. And I was wrestling and thinking, you know, there must be more. There must be more. And we began to really look hard and pray and, and ask God to lead us into helping us understand better, you know, what, what, is, what is our calling about? What, why are we not impacting the world more? And we began to dig deep into discipleship. We began to talk about what it meant to be made for more. And a number of years ago, I read A.W. Tozer's book, The Pursuit of God. And then I took Alpha. That's right. And then I took Alpha. And those two things woke me up to the reality of the Holy Spirit and made me realize that that, that which had been a doctrine and a part of my theology all my life was actually a very real person of God who wanted to have a relationship with me. Who came from the Father and the Son to help me be all that God intended for me to be. And so we began to open ourselves up to more of the Holy Spirit. We began to seek, ask, and knock. Asking God to show us, to lead us, to teach us. I decided to get a spiritual mentor. And my mentor is Robin Guinness, who uh, is a retired Anglican rector, a canon in the Anglican Church, wonderful man whom I knew in Montreal. A man filled with the Spirit of God who was looked up to as, as a a leader in the evangelical community there who's retired living here in Toronto. And three years ago, I began meeting with him. The very first thing that he did was put me on a Bible reading plan, but he taught me something different. He taught me to read the Bible and listen to it. Every day I take one chapter of scripture and I work through a plan where I, it's, it's, it's the law, it's the writings, it's the gospels, or it's the prophets, it's the gospels, and it's the epistles. And I approach it by sitting down and, and coming before God, saying, God, I'm here, I'm listening. Speak to me through your word. Show me the wonders of your love through your word. And then I read through it, and I listen to it, and I, and I pray over it, and then I journal it, and I meditate on what God says to me through that chapter. In the last three years, I have prayerfully read and journaled through every chapter of Genesis, Exodus, and most of Leviticus. Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, Ruth, Job, half of the Psalms, all four Gospels and the book of Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, Titus, Hebrews, and James. And I've learned a lot about love and faith and grace and forgiveness. Because that's who this God is. That's who this God is. The God of the Bible. It's a good time for us to stop for communion. This is what our life is rooted in. The life of Jesus. 
his shed blood, his grace for us, and our response to that grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I'll ask the ushers to come forward, if you would please, to serve the communion. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 29, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me, he says. Jesus, this is who we remember. This is who we follow. This is who we worship. This is our Lord. We do this because of him and for him. He is the one that we follow and serve. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I've been part of a church that was so focused on the Bible that we missed Jesus. That's a shocker. And that's possible. But let's focus on Jesus while we do this communion. And then I'll come back and we'll walk through that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Lord, thank you for your sacrifice, for your love. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that you are our all in all. And we come to this table to worship you, to receive from you, to be to be remembering you. Holy Spirit, would you cause these emblems, this bread and, and this cup, to give life to us in Jesus' name? Would you open our ears, open our hearts, open our minds, help us to see Jesus and realize, Lord, that he did this for us so that we could live for him. And your world is waiting for a people like that. So thank you. Bless the elements, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So the elders have been um, asked a number of times in recent days from people about a rumor that's going around. And the rumor goes something like this, that we at Forest Brook are so focused, so yeah, so focused on, on the Holy Spirit that we no longer teach or believe the Bible. So I want to categorically and without any hesitation or equivocation denounce that. That is a lie from hell. And it has no place in the body of Christ. I want to say a couple of things about it. First of all, one of the things that I want us to look at is what Jesus says to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, verse 37 to 40, where Jesus says, the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice or seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe in the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, Yet you refuse to come to me 
to have life. This is a very real danger. I told you my story because I want you to know I've lived it. And I'm concerned that some of you might be living it, and I don't want you to live that. I don't want you to live like the Pharisees, where your focus is so much on the scriptures that you're missing Jesus. When he's right in front of you, and calling you to himself. And that's what happens here. That's what he's saying to these Pharisees. Notice what he says to them. And the Pharisees, they were the ones who were zealous for the law. They were the ones who were the protectors of the faith. They were the defenders of the faith, once delivered. Anything that smacked or or smelled like a, a deviation from what they believed the faith to be, they resisted, denounced, and stood up against. The problem is they didn't understand the faith. The problem is they didn't really know what the faith was. They thought it was something else. And they were defending an error. Notice what he says. He says to them, you have never heard his voice. Did you notice anything in my story? Did you notice what the touchstone points were? Did you notice the moments when I had a cathartic experience that were transformative? What were those moments? They were the moments when God spoke to me. They were the moments I heard his voice. And they were course-correcting, life-changing, transformative moments. Most of them coming through the scriptures. Sometimes the very scriptures I read for years without hearing his voice. And he says to them, you've never heard his voice. You've never seen his form. You have no experience of his presence. You have no way of perceiving his presence. You can't even tell when he's right in the room. Because you don't know what he feels like. You don't know what he looks like. But you know your scriptures. And his word does not dwell in you. What he is saying is making no difference in your life. What he's actually saying is not transforming you from the inside out. This was my prayer. When, when God led us to have a, a, a kind of an awakening in the power of the Holy Spirit, I said, God, why? I believe that there's great preaching here. We've got, we have people like Dan and Brian and Paul and Robert Cumberbatch and all of our staff. We have great preaching here. I said, God, why aren't people being transformed? Why not? Because that's the Holy Spirit's job. I can say nothing to change your life. There's nothing that I will say that will change your life. Only the Holy Spirit working in your heart will change your life. Only if you hear His voice. And if you don't hear His voice through me, why are you here? Why would you listen to me? Because it's His voice that you need to hear. It's his voice that needs to dwell in you, not mine, but his. Though they knew the scriptures and studied them diligently, they had never heard God speak to them through the scriptures. That's a thing. That's a thing that you and I need to be aware of. Just because we know our scriptures doesn't mean we've heard God speak. That we have to pay attention to. They had never perceived God's presence with them. And God's message to them had no transforming power 
in their lives. And I've been there. I've been there. I've lived that life. Here's the other thing that I want us to pay attention to in this. The Holy Spirit and the Bible are not at odds with one another. They're not in competition. It's not one or the other. We're not being forced to choose. I want to read these passages for you and, uh, and just listen to them. In First Peter, or 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 19 to 21, we also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you would do well to pay attention to it. As to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 to 14, however it is written, no eye has seen nor ear has heard what, and no human mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. Those who are the thing, those, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, for who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them. In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities through spirit-taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Holy Spirit. And in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, quoting from Psalm 95, the author says, So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as you did in the rebellion, during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. This is why I was angry with that generation I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And then the author says, see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But you notice how he started that? How he started quoting Psalm 95? So, as the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit and Scripture are not at odds with one another. The Holy Spirit is the inspirer, the preserver, and the revealer of scriptures. You can have the scriptures, but if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you have nothing. And you don't have the word or message of God. It takes the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and our minds to the scriptures. It takes the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal God's message in the scriptures to us. The Holy Spirit and scriptures go together. The scriptures are the language of God. And through the Holy Spirit, God speaks to us through scripture. But without the Holy Spirit, we run the risk of not hearing. Or worse yet, hearing the wrong thing. So our emphasis on the Holy Spirit is not in place of scripture. 
It is to put Scripture in its place at the feet of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, so that God can speak to us. When people say things like that, often what they mean, and maybe this would help you, you can just translate it if people say this to you, that we don't teach or believe the Bible at Forestburg. What they're really saying is that we don't preach what they want to hear. We're just not teaching it the way they think it should be taught. And that could be true. But I hope that they would listen to what we're teaching. And like the Bereans, search the scriptures prayerfully, asking God to show them if it's true. If you heard anything in my story, I hope you heard that it is that God speaks. I believe that God speaks, and I am listening for God to speak. And we're encouraging ourselves as a church to learn how to listen to God when he speaks. Shirley and I were at a cottage a week ago, and uh, in, the, uh, in the forest we found this tree, which kind of stands out. Um, and uh, so I, I contacted my resident tree expert, Alex Carney, sent him a picture of it, and I said, Alex, why would a tree do this, right? Why would a tree grow like this? And he, uh, he gave me a couple of suggestions of, uh, of what could possibly have done that. But it's quite an unusual tree, as you can imagine. It was either man-made to go like this, uh, which was a First Nations um, way of marking trails. It's called a tree marker. Um, or it was just done this way through something dead, dying on it or whatever. Anyway, there's, there's nothing around it to give any explanation. It's just there. This tree just looks like this. But I thought about it in light of today's message because I think it's such a great visual image of what it is I'm trying to say. You see, the goal of the Christian life is not to know your Bible really, really well. The goal of the Christian life is to live like Jesus. To live a life of love like Jesus. That's the goal of the Christian life. And when you and I are called, and that's God's intent, he adopts us, calls us, puts us in his family, he goes, wonderful, here we are, another, another son, another daughter, who's going to grow into the image of Jesus. And if we're not careful, and sometimes even our churches can do this, we'll get turned sideways, and we'll start growing sideways. Because instead of having an emphasis on what it is to live a life of love like Jesus, our emphasis is put somewhere else. And we can journey down that path for a long time. But thanks be to God that he loves us too much to leave us there. And he'll come along at some point, God willing, and maybe this is your point right now. I've reached that point in my life. Maybe this is the point in Forestbrook. I hope it is where we start to look upward again and grow upward in the image of Jesus and get out there as the, as the people of God making a difference in our world because of him. And may the latter days be even more fruitful and glorious than the former days. It is not my job as the senior pastor of this church to teach you to know your Bible really, really well. I can do that. But it's my job to lead you to live a life of love like Jesus. And I am committed to that. Amen.